Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 1, if you'll join me back there. This evening, we began last week this new study through the book of Deuteronomy and spoke about how really what this is is a series or collection of a few sermons, really extended sermons, that Moses delivered on the edge of the promised land uh, about a month or so chronologically before he departs dies and goes to be with the Lord and before Joshua then takes over the leadership of the children of Israel and actually leads them then into this promised land of Canaan that they have been waiting for some 40 years time to ultimately enter into and it's almost as if now Moses kind of in the book of Deuteronomy gives his farewell speech he almost sort of again is rehearsing a lot of the things that we've already studied in the law and the things that have transpired in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and again, not just verbatim uh, recitation of the exact same things, but sharing those things, rehearsing them now for the younger generation that is now going to go into the land. Remember, the older generation died off in the 40-year wilderness wandering, and so some of the things were told to them secondhand. They didn't experience some of those things. Things to the exact direct extent that their parents did. So Moses wants to make sure this younger generation is equipped and that they're ready to take on and experience the full plan of God for them. So he's rehearsing these things now together coupled with encouragements and warnings to them that they would experience God's best. And really the theme, as we said, is just the theme of obedience that Moses is trying to drive home to them. Listen, if you obey the Lord, you're going to reap good fruit. You're going to experience God's best and God's blessing. And if you choose to disobey the Lord, then in a sense, you're going to bring a curse upon your own life. You're going to bring miserable experiences and bad fruit, and you're going to reap some of the same things even that your parents did as a result of their own decisions. So he's kind of gathered them together and he's just rehearsing these things once again. So let, let's go over this one more time. I want to make sure you got these things so that you're adequately prepared as you take possession of the land and he realizes that he won't be with them anymore. So he's pouring into them one last time. And I think it's a great reminder because, you know, if you find yourself anywhere near the season of life where Moses is at that latter end of your life, or maybe when you can just at a certain stage of life start to look at it and say, you know, uh, there's actually more now behind me than there probably is left in front of me. And you know what that means for you, depending upon how much faith you have of your expectancy of how long you're going to be around, where you realize there kind of comes that stage of life where you realize, you know what, there are probably a lot less years left in front of me than there already are behind me that are already gone and done. And if that's the case, like Moses, that should not be the time when you put your life spiritually into neutral and just try and coast your way in. Look, Moses, in the last, if you would, lap of his life, really buckled down and, and in a sense said, you know what, I have got to now more than ever intensely with focus pour into people what I know and have experienced spiritually to give everything I've got because I'm going to depart and this is my last leg and I want them to be able to run the race well. I want them to know God and experience God's best. So, you know, take the example of Moses here. If that's you and you realize that's what season of life for and now is not the time to sit back. Now is the time to start pouring in to invest 
everything that you can spiritually into your children, your grandchildren, to the younger generation, to those around you, as Moses here now shares these series of sermons. And we left off in chapter one, sort of right in the middle of this first sermon where Moses had been speaking to them, rehearsing their history of their experiences uh, in the time of old and talking particularly in the verses we left off at in regards to how when God told them to go into the promised land the first time, that prior generation, how then instead of going into the land, they sent the spies who came back and 10 of them had a very negative, doubtful report. Uh, and though they said the land is great and it has great fruit, and everything that God said that was good about it that he's giving to us that nevertheless Moses said you would not go up and you rebelled and instead you complained in your tents and you looked at the obstacles and the difficulties and he spoke there in verse 28 of how uh, the brethren discouraged our hearts saying the people are greater and taller than we and the cities are fortified up to heaven and moreover we've seen the sons of Anakim a, a, a group of giants uh, that were there and Moses said, and I said to you, we'll pick it up there, verse 29, do not be terrified or afraid of them. Yes, there are giants there. Yes, there are legitimate obstacles. Yes, there are indeed hindrances and things that will need to be overcome. That's a reality. He's not diminishing that. He's saying the presence of those things is this, yet don't be afraid of the obstacles. All those obstacles do is present an opportunity for God to show his power. They just present an opportunity for God to demonstrate that he can give his victory as he assists. That's what he says there in verse 30 and 31. He says, the Lord, your God, notice, who goes before you. So God doesn't tell you to go into something and say, all right, go give it a shot and I'll wait here for you nice and safe undercover and let me know how you make out with that. God doesn't work that way. When God sends us forth to do something, not only has he gone before us to search out, we're going to see, but the Lord says, look, if we're going to do this, all I'm asking is, is you get behind me. You know, it's almost like, a, you know, it's football season now. And, you know, if you've got some of those really huge linemen, that, that's the smart thing that the running back does with their linemen. The idea if you've got a really huge center and a couple of good offensive lines. Look, just, just get behind me and just let me bulldoze over everybody in front of you. And I'll make a path for you. And in a sense, the Lord says, look, this is what we're doing. We're going to go this direction. Yeah, there are obstacles. I know there are things that are intimidating, but you just get behind me. I'm going to go before you. You just get behind me and I'm going to pave the way in front of you. He says there, verse 30, look at it. He says, he will fight for you. How am I going to win this? I'm going to, I'm going to get defeated. This situation is going to defeat me. I know I'm going to lose. Well, listen, with God, one person is a majority. And God says, look, you, you don't have to lose. You don't have to be defeated because if the Lord is the one who's leading you forward, the Bible says the battle belongs to the Lord. And Moses says, look, he'll fight for you. You don't even have to do the fighting. Just get behind him. Let him go before you. He'll fight for you. Look what he says, verse 30, according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries a son in all the way that you went until you came to this place that is 40 years later, they're back again at the promised land. So what does Moses do? He recounts, in essence, he recounts God's prior faithfulness as an encouragement to have faith rather than fear and to believe that God will fight for them and go before them. He says, the Lord will fight for you as or according to all he already did past tense for you in Egypt. 
So he says, look, when you're struggling with what you're facing, and maybe tonight you're facing some giant in your life, some obstacle, legitimate difficulty, the Lord says, look, don't stare at that. Instead, reflect back on all that God has done for you so far. Just pause and, and reflect. Wow, yeah, that's right. God did that, and he also did that, and he's done this, and he's done that. And somehow as we do that, that tends to just stir our hearts with faith because we realize this, and this is a lot of these chapters ahead are about two and three. God's got a really good track record. And God's saying, don't I have a pretty good track record so far? And if my past track record has been pretty good, then you can count that the track record going forward that God's going to keep his batting average up He's not going to strike out on you this time if he's been so faithful thus far. He says, you see how the Lord your God, verse 31, even carried you as a man carries his son. So he pictures God in this very tender way that when life is hard, he says, not only does God walk with us or go before us, but he says, sometimes God is so tender and gracious and merciful that like a father will pick up their tired, exhausted son and just carry them because they realize that it's just the journey's too much for them and to just pick them up and to tenderly... And he pictures that this is what God is like, actually carrying us sometimes. Remember that uh, old uh, poem, Footprints? You remember that? That was a very famous poem there where basically there's a picture of one set of footprints in the sand and the essence of the poem is something along the lines of, Lord, you know, how come... You know, I always saw two sets of footprints, but then at the hardest hour of my life, I look back and I realize there's only one set of footprints. Lord, how come at the very hardest time of my life, you would actually abandon me? And he says, and the, the answer comes back from, look, at, at the hardest time of your life, the reason why you only see one set of footprints is not because I abandoned you, it's because I was carrying you during that time. And they're my footprints that you see there. And what a beautiful thing that that is the heart of God. That's the nature of God and the faithfulness of God. And here Moses is just bringing this reality to their remembrance. But look, even though that encouragement was being given to Moses, verse 32, he says, yet, that's the key, verse 32, yet for all that, it's almost as if he said, can you believe, yet for all that you did not believe the Lord your God. Isn't it amazing how quick we can be to disbelieve the Lord? Yet for all that, he says, still you chose, again, it shows you unbelief, faith is a choice. Faith, belief, unbelief, doubt, it is a choice. People say, I just can't believe, I just can't believe. The reality is, it's not that you can't believe, it's you won't believe. I just can't, I just can't believe, I mean, I, I, you don't understand, this has been such a long struggle with this sin, I mean, I, I just can't manage to believe that it could ever be different. And God says, no, you're choosing to believe that you could actually live in victory over that. You're choosing not to believe that life could be different. You're choosing to believe that God's not able to make things different, that God's not able to give you victory, that God's not able to do something, that he can't accomplish a miracle. So Moses here says, yet for all that, you did not believe the Lord your God. And of course, that's what led to the tragedy. He says, verse 33, he speaks more of God, who went in the way before you to search out a place for you, to pitch your tents, to show you the way that you should go in the fire by night 
and in the cloud by day. So again, Moses again reiterates how much God was trying to do to demonstrate that he was with them, that he would take care of things for them. I mean, just beautiful terms there to describe the work of God in the life of his people. Verse 33, who went in the way before you look at it to search out a place for you. When God leads us, he he goes ahead of us. He searches out the way for us. He, He not only prepares us for where he's taking us, but he goes ahead of us and he already prepares things out in front of us. He goes, you know, three miles down the road. He goes three conversations down the road. He goes three steps down the road and he starts preparing the way for the right people at the right places at the right time to coordinate it all so that when we get there, the favor of God is waiting there for us. He actually prepares the way for us. He goes out ahead of us, prepares the way in front of us, shows us the way by which we should go at times. And, you know, again, God hasn't changed. How wonderful that he still does that. He goes and prepares a place. He prepares the way ahead of you. And then he shows you the way how to get there. So he prepares things and then he actually provides guidance to show you exactly the way that you should go as you navigate your way through the journey as God is leading you. And in that day, he was guiding them by the fire at night and the cloud by day, keeping them warm, providing light, sheltering them from the mid-eastern sun. And the Lord, verse 34, Moses has heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath saying surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give to your fathers so again what did God hear he heard the complaining and he heard the doubt that was happening as they refused to go in the first time and as a result God uh, in his consequence caused that entire generation to wander for 40 years in the wilderness one year for every day the spies were in the land except verse 36 the two that would go in it only mentions Caleb we know Joshua was included in this the other spy who brought good report back except for Caleb the son of Jephunneh he shall see it that is the land and to him his and his children I'm giving the land on which he walked because he wholly followed the Lord again take notice what does God reward God doesn't reward perfection of performance God rewards what did Caleb bring to the table faith faith interesting we read that term there he wholly completely the idea is there wholly followed the Lord what does it mean to wholly follow the Lord Does it mean I have to be absolutely perfect, never make a mistake, never slip up one time, never never err? To wholly follow the Lord is to wholeheartedly put your confidence in the Lord, to believe with all of your heart. And here's what, what Caleb believed. In essence, if you think about it, Caleb believed what God could do. That's what Caleb and Joshua believed. That's how they wholly followed the Lord. They, unlike the others, they believed that God could do what he said he could do. God was saying, it's your land, I'm giving it to you. But what about the giants? I'll take care of the giants. It's your land. This And Caleb and Joshua believed God will do it. They simply had faith that God would keep his word and that God was able to do what God said he was able to do. And boy, for our lives, what does it mean? That sounds like, well, I want to wholly follow the Lord. You don't wholly follow the Lord? Believe. Believe that God is able to do what he says he's able to do. Take God at his word. When God's word says something, believe it. 
whether it looks humanly possible, whether it seems circumstantially like it could be a reality, whether it looks like it could line up with the potential of maybe what your life could be someday, you believe. Lord, I don't see how. I don't understand in what way it's going to come to pass, but I believe if you said it, I believe that you're going to do it. I wholly believe because you are a good God of integrity and faithfulness and I believe you have the power to do what you say. So Caleb received that reward, him and Joshua, of getting to go into the land because they believed and wholly followed the Lord in that sense. Verse 37, Moses then reminds them how he, in the midst of that, got himself into quite a uh, debacle. He says, the Lord also was angry with me for your sakes saying, even you shall not go in there. And of course, we remember that was as the result of Moses misrepresenting the Lord when he got upset that time and struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And the consequences of his misrepresenting God was quite severe. Moses was not able then to be the one to take them into the land, but Joshua would then be the one to lead them in. So Moses reminds them how their episode ultimately caused him to stumble as well. And verse 38, God then spoke to Moses saying, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there encourage him for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. So again, in a typological sense, as we said before, Moses represents the law. Joshua represents Jesus because the name Joshua, when you translate it, comes to pass the same representation of our word Jesus today. And, and, and of course, it's just this whole picture of how the law can't bring us into the promises of God, but Jesus himself is able. So it becomes this beautiful picture. But here, Joshua would be the one to lead them in. So God tells Moses, listen, since you're not taking them in, and since Joshua will now pick up the baton and take them in, he says, I want you to encourage Joshua. And here's in essence what God is saying to Moses. Look, Moses, even though you can't go in, you can still get behind and encourage the person who can. And I think there's a great spiritual principle here because even if you can't go, you can still encourage someone else who will. And that can play itself out in a lot of ways in life. Maybe you can't go to the mission field. But maybe you can encourage some young Joshua who can go to the mission field. Maybe you can do something to pour into them or invest them. Maybe you can't be the one to fulfill something for whatever the reasons may be. But there are those who can. And even when we can't do something, it doesn't mean that we can't do something in the sense of getting behind those who can and seeking to encourage them in what God's leading them to do and support them and strengthen them. So he says, Moses, encourage Joshua, this younger man, this new leader, encourage him, build him up. Moreover, verse 39, your little ones and your children who you say will be victims who today have not knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there to them. I will give it and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn, God said to them, and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. So God turns them back now at that point. He reminds them how God turned them back away from the promised land and sends them back out into the middle of the desert in the wilderness where they would wander for the next 40 years. And Moses reminded them then of the reaction that came forth from their parents. And then you answered and said to me, we have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And when every one of you had girded on his weapons of war, you were ready to go up to the mountain. And the Lord said to me, tell them, look, do not go up nor fight for I am not among you. 
lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, yet you, notice, would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the mountain. And the Amorites who dwelt there in the mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do. You ever had that experience? I, I ran a lawnmower over a bee's nest in my front yard uh, last summer. Boy, that, that's an experience, isn't it? If you ever you know, come upon a bee's nest and get, that's a visual there. That'll remind you what that's like. And so this is what it was like. The Amorites came out and it was like a nest of bees. They just chased you. You're running for your life, you know, uh, trying to get away in fear. And they drove you back from Seir to Hormah and you returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days according to the days that you spent there. So Moses recounts how after they were reproved for their unbelief and the consequence of God was announced to them that they would now wander for the 40 years in the wilderness and God said, okay. Uh, you have forsaken your opportunity. You're now going to wander for 40 years until this generation dies off and the younger generation will go in. It was at that moment the the impulsive, reactionary moment comes. They say, oh, no, 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 no. Well, we've sinned. We're sorry. And, and, and we're going to go in. And they all started strapping on their weapons and saying, we're going to go in. We're going we're gonna to go in and fight. But see, the problem at that point is it was a wrong motivation. They were only motivated at that point by the fear of consequence instead of being motivated by faith and compliance and obedience to God outright as they should have been. And here now their motivation is wrong. He speaks of them having not listening and rebelling and going up presumptuously and it failed horribly. If they would have gone in faith, God would have blessed and honored. But because they were going up in presumption, it was not in faith. It was an impulsive, presumptuous action they went up and Moses said, they chased you right back out of that uh, area as quick as a group of bees would coming out of a nest chasing a person away. Now, I think Moses is seeking to indicate something to this younger generation as he points out this account here, which is very simply this, that when their parents said, oh, we sinned, we're sorry, we'll go in, and then they instantaneously wanted to go in and God said to them, no, don't go in. I've made my decision now. You can't reverse this now, change your mind and, and, play, and think that you're going to go in now because God says, I'm not going to be with you now. I've already determined what's going to come to pass. The younger generation is going to go in, but they still presumptuously pushed their way and tried to go in anyway and it failed horribly then because God wasn't in it. And what God is pointing out here through Moses' this next generation is that this was not genuine repentance. It might have been remorse because they felt bad because they knew what they had done and they said, we've sinned. And, but Moses said, no, th this was just pride and presumption in a reactionary way. And here's why this isn't genuine repentance because genuine repentance may have tears involved in it. It may have a confession of sin, I have sinned. They can be parts of genuine repentance. But genuine repentance will always lead a person to say, Lord, what do you want me to do genuine repentance always comes to the place where it says lord i give up all my rights i'm not demanding my own way so lord if you don't want me to go in now then i won't go in because lord i don't want my way anymore i want your way 
And Lord, whatever your way is, so Lord, I'll obey whatever you say. In the same way, Lord, I failed to obey the first time. If you're now saying don't go in, then Lord, because I'm genuinely repentant, I won't go in then. I'd rather go wander in this wilderness for 40 years in repentance and being the center of the will of God than I would to try and push past now trying to do what? Because them trying to go into the land was what? Them still wanting to be in control. They wanted their way still. Oh, we're going to go in. No, we're going in. Don't go in. We're going in. Yo. And Moses said, that's just presumption. That's just presumption. That was not genuine faith and this was not repentance and it caused a real problem. They suffered defeat and caused some real severe consequences as he tried to push their way in. So Moses is trying to remind them of that. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 2 now begins to continue with the historical events. It says, And then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness. So, and that it's been quite a discouraging turn as they turn now back out into the wilderness for the next 40 years. On the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke to me, and we skirted Mount Seir for many days. That's a polite way of saying 38 more years. <laughs> many days. It was many days, all right. It was a 38-year funeral procession as they literally walked as people died off over the next 30 years, wandering out into the wilderness that they could have avoided. And the Lord spoke to me. The idea is at the end of that 38-year period, the culmination of the 40 years, the Lord then spoke to Moses saying, verse 3, you have skirted this mountain long enough. Turn northward. So at the end of the 40 years, wandering out in the wilderness and notice wandering around, it seems, almost somewhat in a circuitous or circular route around the area of Mount Seir, just going in circles for 40 years, sort of circling the same thing again and again and again, living out there in the wilderness, just going in circles and getting nowhere. Just going in circles through the same patterns, the same routine, accomplishing nothing, making progress, just skirting around Mount Seir. And God says, long enough. You have been walking in circles long enough. We've been doing this long enough. It is time to turn and move forward. It's time to move northward. And the word of the Lord comes and says, okay, this time of walking in circles is enough. Hey, let me be very honest. Is there not times in your life, maybe this evening or times before where you've just kind of felt like that you've just been walking in circles and you've just been circling the same thing again and again, the same pattern, the same unhealthy routine, Maybe sometimes spiritually you're just walking in circles, wandering around, getting nowhere. Whether it's because of unbelief, whether it's because of a lack of faith, maybe it's because of some sin, whatever it is. And sometimes spiritually, people can just walk in circles and they never go anywhere. And God says, it's been long enough now. It's been long enough. It's time to stop playing church. It's time to stop walking in circles and staring at the same life-dominating sin. It's time to move on. We've been circling this mountain long enough. We're done with this. And what a wonderful thing when the word of the Lord graciously but yet very firmly says, now that's enough now. It's time to move on. 
And sometimes God says that to us. You know, maybe there's some mountain, there's some obstacle, there's some thing in your life where, you know, even maybe something that from your past that's just plaguing you and plaguing you and, and you never make progress because you just kind of stays there in your rearview mirror and as you're moving around, you just keep staring at it, you just keep staring at it. Oh, but this thing, this huge mountainous thing. And God says, okay. Now, long enough now. It's time to leave this thing. It's time to put this mountain in the rearview mirror. And it's time to turn and move northward and move toward the direction of experiencing the plan of God that he ultimately has. So now the word comes to turn away and to move northward, verse 4, and command the people saying, you are about to pass through the territory of your brethren. Now verse 4 down really through about the next 20 or so verses, God is going to speak to them about when they go through some of these territories on the eastern side of the Jordan, territories that really were their blood relatives, their cousins in essence, if you would, the people of Edom, uh, the people of Moab, the people of Ammon, that the Jews by blood were actually related to. The same blood was in their veins. And God's going to say, look, as you go through these territories, these are not the territories I've given to you. So don't be presumptuous and think that just because you're my chosen favor people that you have the right to just do what you want and to start claiming land. God's going to say, look, don't meddle with them. Respect them, respect their boundaries and, and move through those territories with respect and appreciation. So he says, you're about to pass through the territory of your brethren, verse four, the descendants of Esau, which would be the Edomite people. Remember Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau was the, the twin brother of Jacob. He says, who live in Seir and they will be afraid of you. So there'll be a sense of intimidation because they know the people of Jehovah God are in their territory. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Verse five, God says to them, and do not meddle with them. For I will not give you any of, notice, their land. No, not so much as one footstep. So God says, not even one little, you know, foot-long plot of ground, not even one footstep, the, the measurement of one foot, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. So this would be the territory of sort of modern-day Jordan, if you look at a map that's being referred to. This was the territory of the people of Esau, the descendants of Esau the Edomites, and God gave that land to them. Now notice again, God is a God. Acts 17 says that from one blood, God has made all nations under heaven and has pre-appointed their times and their places. So God pre-appoints when people will live generationally. God pre-appoints where every blood and tribe and every nation will live on this planet geographically. And I want you to take notice of this. Not only does God give the nation of Israel, the land of Canaan. And people say we're so dogmatic about that. But look, God also, this wasn't a new thing. God gave this land to the descendants of Esau. And God told his chosen people, the Jews, look, I'm giving you this land, but don't go marching in there thinking that you can just grab and take whatever you want in some power struggle. He says, I've given that land to the descendants of Esau. God cares about all people. God cares about all nations. And, and here God says, don't touch their land. That land, which is the area of Mount Seir, it belongs to Esau. I've given it to him as his possession. So God's word there, verse 5, don't meddle with them. Don't meddle with them. Don't go looking for trouble, God says. Don't go picking fights if you don't need to get in fights. And I think there's just a good reminder. Sometimes that's a word of the Lord to remind us when we move through certain territories and different situations, when we're in somebody else's territory. And God says, look, 
Okay, you may brush by their territory or move through their territory or be exposed to things that are part of the territory of their life, but it doesn't mean that you need to meddle. And sometimes we need to remember that. Look, sometimes fights and conflicts and experiences are going to come our way, but there's never good reason to meddle unnecessarily in other people's business and territory. There's enough to keep us busy with our own land, (laughs) maintaining our own grounds, if you get what I'm saying. So God says, don't meddle, just move through the land. Verse six, he says, you shall buy food from them with money that you may eat and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. So God said, you know, be fair and equitable. If you take any food or any water, you know, be gracious, purchase it, pay for it. Don't just take it greedily or selfishly for yourself. It's going to cause anger or conflict among them, which is interesting. You're beginning to see now this transition where, again, notice, buy the food, buy the water, which goes to show they didn't always live their entire existence getting miracle manna from heaven. Again, what's God doing? He's helping them to grow up now. Things are beginning to change now. They're working. They're experiencing provision in different ways. They're doing things, buying, selling, trading, doing things to provide for themselves, to buy the food they need, to buy the water they need. So again, God wants to grow us. Yes, is there times God brings manna from heaven? Absolutely. But as we mature and grow, God also says, look, there are times where I also want you to begin to participate in the process. So they're now beginning to participate where they're actually purchasing and paying for some of these things, which means they were doing productive things. They weren't just standing around going, God, we're hungry. Just feed us like a little birdie all the time. Where's the miracle? God, we're waiting here for the miracle. God says, no, you're doing it. And it's just pay for the food, pay for the water. So again, God provides always. But the way he provides can come in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it is a miracle. Sometimes it's manna from heaven. Other times, God tells someone like Peter, Peter, they're giving the indication that we should probably pay our taxes. So what does he tell Peter to do? I want you to go down to the water. I want you to throw the line out into the water and you're going to take in a fish. The very first fish that you take in, you're going to open its mouth and there's going to be a coin in its mouth and use that to pay for your tax payment and for mine. What does he send Peter to do? Work. What was Peter? A fisherman. He could have just went... Ta-da! There you, I mean, he's Jesus. He could have just miraculously provided the money. He could have done that, and God does miraculously sometimes provide in ways like that. I've been the recipient of the miraculous provision of the Lord before. It's a great thing. But there are other times where the Lord says, what are you? That's right, you're a fisherman. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to go fish, and in the midst of fishing, you're going to find my provision is easily supplied there in the midst of that. So here, God now asking them to be responsible, to maintain themselves in a way that's ethical as they interact with their brethren among the Edomites to purchase the water and the food. Verse 7, he says, For the Lord your God has blessed you, look what he says, in all the, there's the word, work of your hand. How could they pay for their food and their water? Because God's blessed the work of their hand. He gave them the opportunity and blessed them when they received opportunity to work so that they could purchase at this season in their lives. Verse 7, he knows, interesting terms, you're trudging. That's a great word, isn't it? He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you and you have lacked nothing. So 40 years, 
Moses, again, calling them to reflect back. And he says, look, God knows. He's aware how you've trudged through this great wilderness season. God knows what you've been through, Moses is saying. He's fully aware. And Moses says, again, just think about it. He says, not only has God been with you, have you really ever lacked anything? You know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, young lions suffer hunger, but he who fears the Lord shall lack no good thing. Is it not true if we were all to just be legitimately honest, though we can complain and have our bouts of ingratitude and we go through some tough times here and there, but the bottom line is if we were to be honest, like humble children, is it not true that despite the wilderness we may walk through sometimes, that we honestly have never lacked anything? That God has somehow come through and provided, whether it was the miracle from heaven or the opportunity to work and bless in the work of our hand or given us an opportunity. However it's been, God makes sure to take good care of us. And he preserves us. And he makes sure that we don't lack. David speaks of that in Psalm 37, how he's never seen the righteous begging bread. God takes good care of his kids. And he's with us. He walks with us through our journey. And the truth of the matter is, Moses is trying to say, God's really been good to us. You know, I looked at this verse today, verse 7, I thought to myself, verse 7, that, that sounds like a great Thanksgiving verse. You know, just take that and chew on that as you think through Thanksgiving, how he's just journeyed with you, maybe through the wilderness season of your life recently, and, and how he's been with you, and you've lacked nothing. He's always come through. He's come through in every way, taking good care of you during your life. And when we pass beyond our brethren, the descendants of Esau, who dwelt in Seir, away from the road of the plain, away from Eloth, which is another representation of Elot, the territory we know today, and Ezion Geber, we turned and then passed by the wilderness of Moab. And then the Lord said to me, much like with the people of Edom, do not harass Moab, another blood relative of the Jews, nor contend with them in battle. Again, don't pick fights with them. Be peacemakers. For I will not give you any of their land as a possession, God says, because I have given our to the descendants of Lot as a possession. Then the Emim had dwelt there in the times past, a people great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. Again, a, a descendants of some giant-like people. They also were regarded as giants like Anakim, but the Moabites call them Emim. The Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau, notice, they dispossessed them, they drove them out, though they were giant-like people, and destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their place just as Israel did in the land of their possession, which the Lord your God gave them. So we get a little parenthetical statement there between verse 10 and 12. In essence, what Moses is reminding them is how God helped even people like Moab and the people of Esau to drive out giants from territories in their past and to dispossess and take over their land. And I think what Moses is trying to say is, look, if God drove out giants for the Moabites... Do you really think he's not going to drive out giants for his own chosen people? <laughs> if God's done that for people who don't necessarily worship him and acknowledge him, and the truth of the matter is God's really kind and takes good care of people even who don't serve him. I know he did that for me and he did that for you for a lot of years. He was being really kind and taking good care of you and you were evil and unthankful and had no relationship and God was being really nice to you. God's really a gracious, kind God even to people who don't follow him and God's saying, look, if I drove out giants for these people, do you think for my own precious children 
I won't drive out the giants in front of you. That I won't do what's necessary to make sure that you experience my plan. Verse 13, now rise, cross over the valley of Zered. So we crossed over the valley of Sered and the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Sered was 38 years until all that generation of men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp just as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the midst of the camp until they were consumed. And so it was when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people that the Lord spoke to me saying, Verse 18, this day you are to cross over it are the boundary of Moab. And when you come near the people of Ammon, again, another descendant, blood relative, God once again says, don't harass them. Again, or meddle with them. Almost as if God knows that we need to hear that periodically. <laughs> don't harass people. Don't meddle with people. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession because I've given that land, again, notice, to the descendants of Lot. And that also was regarded as a land of giants. Giants formerly dwelt there. But the Ammonites call them Zamzumim. That's an interesting name they gave to them. That's probably kind of what you said when you saw one of those giants. Zamzumim. Well, you know, I'm just assuming. What, I mean, yeah, I'm trying to find something humorous in that. Why they call them that, I don't know. A people great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before them and they dispossessed them and dwelt in their place. Notice verse 22, just as he had done for the descendants of Esau who dwelt in Seir when he destroyed the Horites from before them, they dispossessed them and dwelt in their place even to this day. And the Avim who dwelt in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftorim who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and dwelt in their place. So again, God just referring how they weren't to touch the land of Ammon in the same way with the Moabites and the descendants of Esau. Same protocol. Don't meddle. Don't harass them. This is their land. It's not the land I'm giving you. Again, God's reminding them, take everything I give to you, but don't ever step outside of my boundaries. And I think that's a good word for us. God says, look, there, I've given you a lot. I've blessed you. And fully take possession of and enjoy everything I've given to you within the boundaries that I've intended for you, but don't press my boundaries. And I think for so many areas of our life, that's a good reminder. Look, we have a blessed life. If we live within the boundaries God has given to us spiritually and morally and in our lives, there's a lot to keep ourselves occupied and to be really fulfilled and satisfied. Where we err is when we foolishly step outside of the boundaries and think the grass is greener over there. And then when we step outside of the boundaries, we cross a line where God is displeased. And so he's warning his people not to do that. And look at the change now, verse 24. He says, and rise, take your journey and cross over the river Arn and look. Now he says, change of language, I have given into your hand Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land begin to possess it and engage him in battle. Now, do you see why you have to stay current with the Lord? God mentions three nations, descendants of Esau, Moabites, the Ammonites, and God says, don't touch their land. I haven't given it to you. Don't meddle with them. Don't harass them. Don't be presumptuous and try and just take it for yourself because God says, it's, I haven't given that to you. But then in the very next breath, God says, but this I have given to you. And now he speaks of the people of Sihon, the Amorites, and he says, 
those people, I have given you their land. And he says, therefore, begin to possess it and engage them in battle. God, God calls his people to go on the offensive. Here, God is giving them a directive militarily to engage in warfare. God gives them a divine decree and says, these people, I want to be removed from that land. And again, hear, hear me out on this. That's God's divine prerogative. God is the judge of all men. God is the judge of all nations. God knows the details of what is going on in kings and kingdoms and nations and what people are doing morally and spiritually. And God has the right to determine at times as he used the nation of Israel as an instrument to say, those people, I want to remove them. I want to remove them. And so God calls them. He says, that land I have given to you. And God says, engage in battle. And sometimes God's saying, look, don't start a battle there. Don't start a fight there. Stay out of fights. I don't think we should ever go looking for fights. They'll find you anyway. <laughs> you notice that, right? But then there's sometimes where God says, this is a battle I want you to engage in. And when God says engage, we should. We shouldn't fear. We should engage and walk forward and get in the battle. Look, the Christian life, the spiritual life sometimes is a battle. It's a war. And we need to realize that and not be afraid to engage in the battle spiritually when the Lord is leading us to. He says, This day I'll begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven who shall hear report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. And I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedamoth to Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will keep strictly to the road and I will turn neither to the right nor to the left you shall sell me food for money that I may eat it and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot just as the descendants of Esau who dwelt in Seir and of the Moabites who dwell in Ar did for me until I cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord our God is giving us. So Moses tries to make this diplomatic approach saying, look, we just want to peacefully pass through there. We don't want to cause a problem. But notice, because God had something that he was doing in his divine prerogative sovereignly it says verse 30 but Sihon king of Heshbon though Moses tried diplomacy he wanted nothing to do with it you remember the account in the book of Numbers Moses said please can I just pass through peacefully and this guy instantly got ticked off and came out and picked a fight and started a military conflict what's God doing he's beginning to prepare the nation of Israel with sort of some preparatory battles to get them ready to become a military people to conquer the land in the days of Joshua so God's giving them some training camp. He's giving them conflict and military battles. So Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass through, Moses remembered. He says with understanding and discernment, For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might deliver him into your hand as it is to this day. And the Lord said to me, See, I've begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to possess it that you may inherit his land. And then Sihon and all his people came out against us to fight at Jahaz. And the Lord our God delivered him over to us. So we defeated him and his sons and all his people. We took all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men, the women, the little ones of every city and left none remaining. We only took the livestock as plunder for ourselves with the spoil of the cities which we took. From Arar, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and from the city that is in the ravine as far as Gilead, there was not, I love this, not one city too strong for us, Moses says. 
The Lord our God delivered all to us, only you did not go near the land of the people of Ammon, anywhere along the river Jabbok, or to the cities of the mountains, or wherever the Lord our God had forbidden us. So a few things we see here as this unfolds with the people of Sihon, uh, of the Amorites, and then the same thing we'll see when we get to chapter 3 next time with Og of Bishon. These territories God did want to give to the people. And these were territories that God had decreed judgment upon because of the wickedness, Genesis tells us from all the way back in the book of Genesis, the, the iniquity of the Amorites had reached its full. God waited 400 years patiently. But these people had become so debased and so immoral and so corrupt that God decreed judgment upon them. He used Israel as his nation. And here Moses says, I realize that what ultimately was happening is God hardened his spirit and that's what made him get angry and come rushing out at us and start a conflict with us. But it became the very platform, he says, whereby God then delivered him, verse 33, over to us and we defeated him. Here's what Moses realized. Is God made this man be confrontational, rebellious, and resistant and say no? And that was part of the plan of God. Now, to me, that's very insightful because sometimes we get really flustered when somebody's not cooperative. We think, what's the deal? Why is this person being so uncooperative? Why do they keep saying no? Why do they keep rejecting me? And we think maybe things are going wrong. And look, sometimes God makes somebody say no as a part of the process to give you a victory. God says, yeah, I'm I'm making them say no on purpose. (laughs) I know it doesn't make sense to you. God, why are they saying no and attacking me and coming against me? And God says, I know you don't understand it, but trust me. This is part of the process for me to give you victory in the battle and ultimately give to you what I want to give to you Don't fret over their no. Don't fret over their resistance. Trust me. Believe that I'm working on your behalf. And Moses says, I realized, wow, this was God beginning to work on our behalf to give to us this land so that not only them, but no territory was too strong for us because whatever God wanted for us, God ultimately gave to us. And what a wonderful thing to know that same God is working in your life. And maybe recently, maybe currently, maybe tomorrow or next week or next month, you're going to get some hardcore resistance or a no. But a no from man doesn't mean a no from God. A human's no may actually be the platform for God's yes. Be encouraged by that. Let's stand together. Let's pray.